Welcome back to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. It's my pleasure to have Pamela Radcliffe, a professor of history at UC San Diego, on the program today. She is the author of the book Modern Spain, 1808 to Present, out last year from Wiley Blackwell as part of their A New History of Modern Europe series. Today, we're going to look at the experience and challenges of writing a history of modern Spain and some of the insights that Professor Radcliffe gained along the way. So Pamela, welcome to the program. Thank you, Foster. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought to start out, before we turn to your book specifically, we might mention some previous approaches to this topic of a broad overview of modern Spanish history. So in the preface to your book, you group these approaches into two broad categories, stories of success and failure. So to start out, could you give us a sense of what this failure narrative was? Yes, absolutely. And and the failure narrative was uh, certainly the dominant one for most of the 20th century. I think you could see its origins in the generation of 1898 and the kind of pessimism about Spain in comparison to other European countries. And then that's really taken up, uh, maybe exacerbated by the the loss of this in the Civil War and the Franco regime in the sense that somehow Spain is out of sync with the more advanced European countries. So what that translates into is a sense of either that Spain failed to develop in a normal way, and that was first in economic terms, uh, the sort of famous book about the failure of the Industrial Revolution, um, and then in everything else that followed, um, you know, social and um, uh, cultural and political and economic, you know, all of the other aspects were uh, measured by failure. And of course, what failure meant was compared to the most advanced uh, European countries and advanced, particularly England when it came to industrialization, and then France when it came to the development of um, political, especially a democratic political system. So Spain was, you know, compared negatively to those um, vanguard countries and, and determined to be a failure. So that, I think, really through the 1960s is kind of the dominant um, narrative. Okay, so then, say starting in the 1960s or 70s, what does this alternative success narrative look like and why did that start to emerge? Right, so I would, I think it, it's, uh, it's specifically a revisionist narrative, you know, they don't call it a success narrative, but, but it's a revisionist narrative. And I think the origins of that narrative, there are two different reasons for that. Economically, uh, when you have the pretty significant industrialization in the 1960s and 70s at the end of the Franco regime, Spain catches up pretty quickly, right, in economic terms, and suddenly, you know, by 1975 is the, I think it's the 10th biggest economy in the world, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, so that, I think, leads people to kind of reevaluate Spain's failure narrative in terms of Spain's economic development. You know, how could Spain have sort of caught up so quickly if that you know, if it had been um, a failure all along. So that, I think, is one side of it. The other side of it is the political one, which is with the transition to 
the democratic regime in the late 1970s, once again, it seems as if Spain quickly normalizes, and I'm using that word with quotation marks, but it quickly normalizes into supposed Western European patterns. And once again, there's a sort of question, well, if if this happened so easily and quickly, then maybe, you know, we haven't been so such a failure after all, and maybe liberal democratic ideals were not so foreign to Spain's, you know, history or culture all along. In other words, those events in the present of the 1960s and 70s push historians to think differently about the past and to kind of reevaluate. So you have two kinds of revisionist narratives. One of them is political, and that goes back to particularly the origins of the liberal revolution in the early 19th century. You know, in the failure narrative, the the argument was basically that Spain failed to have a liberal revolution, that uh, liberalism was a foreign ideology that was imposed from the outside, came from the French, it was never really indigenous, and um, this um, failure of the liberal revolution sort of extends into the restoration of the late 19th century, which is an undemocratic regime. So the revisionist historiography uh, I would say it's sort of on two, it, there's two chronological versions of it. One focuses on the early 19th century and which argues that, uh, or, or even going back to the late 18th century, you know, that Spain has its own sort of enlightenment ideas and principles which are different from the uh, French, you know, some of the French ideas, but has their own enlightenment. They have their own vision of um, a liberal political system. And that if you look at the results in the early 19th century, you know, you can check all of the boxes in terms of what is actually put into practice. Um, the second part of the argument is about the restoration in the late 19th century. And now there's a lot of interesting arguments about whether, in fact, you know, despite despite the fact that the restoration was certainly not a democratic regime by any uh, by any measure, that there are you know, some some have argued that there's actually more kind of representation going on, more participation going on than, um, you know, any kind of earlier failure model had implied. Now, on right. the economic side, right, the economic revisionist side, um, most associated with David Ringrose's book, um, in which he argues that in, you know, rather than some sort of anomaly that the Spanish economy basically follows in the general patterns of European economic history, you know, over the 19th century. And I would say that th that the revisionist positions have also been aided by a kind of, what's the right word, a, uh, you know, kind of relativization of European history or a critique of the European narrative, which which was really always, you know, the French narrative or the British narrative exported to other countries, you know. Right. And so there's all of these different national narratives saying, well, you know, every every narrative is slightly different rather than having us be somehow unfavorably compared to the vanguard countries. If we see this shift towards Right, may, maybe not as simple as a success model, but certainly a revision of that earlier idea of of Spain being backward in the modern period. Then, how could we characterize some of the most recent scholarship in terms of constructing a narrative of modern Spanish history? Is it still really just focused on on saying no? It's 
It's not just a failure model. This was one of the conundrums I had in terms of approaching this History of Spain book that I wrote myself. And I, I will tell you that it, I was basically paralyzed for about two years um, because I didn't quite like either one of those narratives. <laughs> um, you know, the revisionist narrative, as much as it was a good corrective, was still a little bit, um, you know, it was a little bit overly positive and optimistic, especially if you look at all the critiques of, you know, mo modernization and modernity that have come about in the last few decades, right? So mm -hmm. to say Spain is modern just like everyone else, that carries with it negatives and positives. It's not just a positive to say that, right? Modernization brought fascism. You know, it didn't just bring democracy, right? Right. So I think um, I think I needed a framework that was, you know, again, neither one or the other extreme, neither the failure model nor a kind of positivist revisionism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was really my own decision to to create a framework where I, which I call modernity with all its warts, I emphasize in the book the similarities between Spain and the other European countries, as well as the diversity, right, of all of those European experiences, and that Spain is in the mix of that diversity. Um, but also acknowledging that that means Spain experienced all the negative impacts of uh, modernity and modernization as well. Right, so could you give us an example of some of those more negative aspects of this modernization process and how those impacted Spain? Uh, you know what, a good specific example would be how the Franco regime was treated in some of the traditional historiography. You know, the traditional view of the two Spains, modern Spain and, you know, backward or old regime Spain sort of fighting it out. And the Franco regime in that old historiography stood for backward Spain, you know, that somehow backward Spain had won the Civil War, right, and kept Spain from modernizing into the you know, into the 1970s. But in fact, I think we have to see the Franco regime as a modern regime. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a modern authoritarian regime. So that completely destabilizes, you know, any notion that this, you know, that the Franco regime somehow represents, you know, backward forces. It's actually a modern authoritarian regime that uses you know, uh, uses justifications that, you know, talk about how things used to be, but it also uses modern forms of mobilization and um, governance, and of course, you know, some fascist um, sort of rhetoric and, and symbolism, right, in order to justify its rule. Right after World War II, say, a, a, a lot of historians interpreted fascism as kind of this older model that was rearing its its head again uh, in a new form, but then to say no that th that this is actually a pro a product of modernity and and even some of the more th authoritarian regimes in Europe it w it wasn't necessarily some sort of early modern holdover but different adaptations to to this modern story right right and and I think um, historians of the Nazi regime for example have 
gone through that coming to terms, right, with Nazism as a product of modern, you know, modern historical developments, rather than some of the earlier historians of Nazism tried to see it as, you know, the product of Germany's incomplete um, political development, right? And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a way of saying that somehow if they had modernized fully, they wouldn't have experienced Nazism. But I think, you know, few people would defend that position now. And most people would accept, you know, that fascism is a product of modern, you know, forces and not some result of incomplete modernity. Right. You know, so the Franco regime then becomes part of that story rather than uh, a symbol of Spain's traditionalist past um, mm-hmm. surviving into the 20th century. That's one of the things that I thought was really interesting about your book is even as you're putting the history of Spain into this European story, you're also really engaging with the historiography outside of just what's going on in Spain and, and linking that to the, the latest scholarship in other European countries like like Germany. Are there any other cases where you were inspired by work that was being done on other countries and, and saying, this is how we can kind of interpret Spanish history using those lenses. You know, I was inspired more by um, bigger uh, transnational histories, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for the 19th century, I was specifically uh, inspired by Bailey's uh, book, uh, The Birth of the Modern World, because, you know, he, I think, really makes that case for diversity of experience and, you know, de-centering the... English Industrial Revolution, showing that, you know, that kind of um, focus on one single part of the world as, you know, as the norm for all the others, you know, he really decenters that. And so that I found his book really useful and inspiring for the 19th century, sort of the origins of modernity, right? And then for the 20th century, Mark Mazower's book, um, Dark Continent, I think was really powerful to me when I first read it, you know, when it first came out in terms of once again, kind of normalizing fascism, right, as a product of European uh, culture, and also his effort to, to bring together Eastern and Western Europe especially in the post-war period where, you know, he argues that in earlier histories of post-war Europe, post-war Europe really means Western Europe. Now, of course, he doesn't really include Southern Europe, as (laughs) as most people don't. And Bailey um, also doesn't include Spain um, in his global history. So they're inspiring on the one hand because they help provide channels for integrating Spain but on the other hand they're a less you know there's they sort of illustrate the problem that most of these transnational histories don't include Spain well and and that's the other interesting thing is that there's been a lot of talk including in your book about linking Spain to a broader European story but what's interesting is to also link it to actually a global story you know that the, the comparisons aren't just with uh, with Europe and and I think that's something that you that you address in your book too especially in regards to the to the transition because maybe the transition is a place where there it was more of a global linkage no and that's the moment when Spain kind of enters re-enters um, transnational um, theory right is right the transition mm-hmm. that's when other people pay attention to Spain or other you know scholars of other places I would say that one thing I don't do in this book in that I, you know I just wasn't able to do that um, you, you know you can't do everything but I yeah. think you could do more with 
putting it in the Atlantic world and especially, you know, Latin America. So, you know, that connection, of course, is is very explicit and tight in the pre-modern period. Mm -hmm. But there are many connections throughout the 19th and 20th century. And I really make the effort in this book to kind of situate Spain in the European story. But I think you could also do, um, you could also situate it more closely in the Hispanic Atlantic world as well, even in the modern period. And those linkages, they don't stop even when many of the exactly. European or the American colonies become independent. Become independent, uh-huh. right, exactly. Okay, so let's take a short break and when we come back we'll talk a little bit more about the actual process of writing a, a history of modern Spain. In this second segment, I want to talk a little bit more about the process of writing a a very sweeping book like this. So I thought we could start by me asking you how you got started. Um, How did you approach researching uh, a a book that covers over 200 years of Spanish history? Um, One step at a time, I guess, would be the answer (laughs) to that question. I have to say that once I came up with the kind of overall framework, which we talked about in the in the last segment, you know, that had really stymied me for a couple of years. I couldn't even get started until I kind of had a sense of where I wanted to go, you know, that I wanted it to be comparative, you know, I wanted to really bring in the European and global context. And, you know, I wanted to tell a story about Spain moving, you know, into the modern period, neither as a kind of celebratory story nor as a failure. You know, I Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something else. So once I had gotten that down, it it actually, it was a matter of sort of one step at a time of really trying to master historiographies on, uh, on different periods. And I would say that, you know, this is an advantage and a disadvantage of Spanish historiography is that people tend to really um, specialize in certain chronological area, you know, chronological eras. And so you can it, you can add a lot, you contribute a lot by just reading across all of those chronological eras, because there's not really a lot of uh, interchange between people. People don't jump from one era to the other. So you know, the contribution of simply just kind of connecting the dots is, you know, more than you would think, right? So partly it's that, it's kind of connecting the dots and and saying, well, okay, people have been, you know, debating and arguing about this in the early 19th century, you know, how does that then relate to the restoration at the end of the 19th century? So those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, there's so much rich local history, local histories that are written that I really wanted to kind of try and absorb a lot of that grassroots and local and social history and see if I could um, really synthesize, right, and come up with some bigger um, 
generalizations and conclusions based on that. So that was sort of a second strategy, I guess, is yeah. to you know is to really read as much as I could, and then in terms of kind of figuring out how to divide it up, I decided in the end to sort of take the political narrative and put it into particular in chapters dedicated to the political narrative and then have separate chapters on social and economic and cultural history. And that just seemed to work the best to me because those social, cultural, and economic tend to be longer term changes whereas the political narrative changes pretty rapidly. So I felt like those two different chronologies would work better if they were kept separate. That's one thing that impressed me about the book was that not only does it span a broad swath of time, but it also covers many different thematic areas, the political, economic, uh, social, and I think especially in Spanish history, those aren't areas that are always in dialogue with each other very much either so you had to do the the reading and in all those areas as well reading was basically the you know the big challenge is is trying to read and absorb and i also really wanted to read you know in spanish and catalan as well because there's a, a sort of major historiography you know in in catalan as well so i wanted to read i wanted it to be not just um english language that's obvious of course but um mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the Spanish language historiography is not really accessible to the English-speaking audience. And so, you know, citing and bringing all of that Spanish language historiography into an English language book, I thought was important as well, in terms of giving the American students or British students access to that historiography. And and maybe even for scholars who want to bring in the the Spanish example but may not be able to read thoroughly in the in the historiography. Right. You know what? I am really hoping this book is one that can be used by the next Bailey or the next Mazauer, right, who are writing yeah. their general histories and then can actually have a more up-to-date source, right, that mm-hmm. they can use to bring in the one or two Spanish examples they might use. <laughs> right, cause, yeah, because I've noticed that w- when you do read more general histories of Europe, often the, there will be inaccuracies in this, the Spanish example, sometimes because they're reading older texts. Yeah, they're still citing Raymond Carr's book. You know, right. and, and there are many good things about Raymond Carr's book, but it is, you know, quite out of date as a, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and and in terms of the interpretations as well, right. certainly. Right, So, you mentioned how, as you were getting started, it, it took a while to figure out what exactly the, the framing was going to be and, and how you fit in with these other narratives. But once the um, writing process got started, did, did you find it to be smoother sailing or, or were there any kind of surprises or roadblocks that you hit uh, along the way? You know, I think, I think one of the biggest roadblocks I found was when you get to the 20th century and the historiography is so polarized in these left and right wing um, narratives mm-hmm. that it was it was almost as if you couldn't state a single fact as just fact without it being embedded in either you know in a sort of left wing or a right wing narrative, and so I found that really 
really challenging. What I ended up doing is just acknowledging that mm-hmm. in each of those chapters, you know, especially on the Republic and the Civil War um, and the Franco regime, really kind of acknowledging that there are these almost, you know, incompatible competing moral narratives that make it really difficult to tell any story, right? Right. I don't think the solution to that is like, oh, it must be right down the middle. That's not the solution. Mm-hmm. The solution is more the tension, you know, of these competing narratives and what they, the meaning that each of them gives to different events. And, and you know, a, a great example of that, right, is the second uh, biennium of the, of the Second Republic, which, you know, in the left narrative is the black biennium, right, right in which nothing good happens uh, at all, and it's a complete undermining of the Republic. But, you know, in the more conservative narrative, it's one in which there's kind of a different version of, you know, republicanism without the social, you know, without the social um, content to it, but doesn't mean it's anti-republican. So you've got these sort of uh, completely incompatible versions, right, of what does this two-year period stand for? Right. You know, so what do you do with that? So I found that to be a big challenge. I thought that what was interesting was the way that you brought out these different polarized historiographical interpretations and made that part of the of the historical narrative. I thought that was another thing that kind of distinguished the book from from some of these other histories of the period. And and I think that's important actually. I mean, that's how I teach my my classes as well. I think it's actually really important that students understand that you know, you are presenting them with a particular reading of the past whereas a lot of these more textbook level, you know, like a true textbook is just, you know, here's what happened in the past, as if it's clear, you know, as if you could just say that. And so I didn't want this book to be that. I wanted this book to really um, make it clear for students, you know, even even students who are not going to go deeply into the footnotes and, you know, go into all the debates to understand that telling the story of the past is always taking a position. Yeah, that's that's uh, definitely important for students to learn. And I, and I find in my own work, sometimes you can even, even if you're trying to, like you, like you say, sort of thread the needle between the two sides, it's not possible because even the very language that you use has certain political implications. Like if you say the national side in the Civil War, or, or if you say the rebels, it immediately puts you in a in a certain position. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm working on the translation, um, the Spanish translation of the book now, and the person I'm working with came back and said, do you want to call them sublevados or nacionales? Right? And those two words have different meanings, exactly right. as you were saying, right? Exactly. Yeah. Another kind of polemical area, I suppose there are a lot of them in uh, Spanish history I I wanted to ask you about was actually at the very end of your book, because you take the story all the way up to the present day, and it was very interesting to me because it ends actually mentioning that we have this narrative of a transition to democracy and then kind of this stable democracy, but um, in recent years that's been called into question because there are still certain instabilities in that democracy and and you mention the separatist movement in Catalonia perhaps being the greatest of those and then uh, I think it was a few months after the book came out that that really kind of came to a head with the especially with the events of October 2017 so I'm wondering as you go into the 
the Spanish version now, how you're dealing with these recent events and if, and if those are going to change uh, the narrative of the book at all, you think? Yeah, and that's a very good question. It's a very good question because when I was finishing the book, it made me realize how dependent on the current moment you know any narrative of the past is mm -hmm. so you know if you were writing anywhere in the 1980s and 90s you know you would end on this happy note right you know spain finally achieves you know this is what made the revisionist narrative so powerful at that moment you know spain has achieved right modernity we're just like everybody else we have a normal democracy but over the last decade, um, you know, particularly obviously since the economic crisis of 2009, what has struck me is how quickly there's been a kind of reversal or uh, reverting back to a kind of failure narrative. Like it, yeah. it, it was just there below the surface, right? And so the f you know the failure narrative is right there in the fore again, whereas. You, you don't see that in France, right? You know, they're all all the other countries are having the same sorts of serious issues going on with right. democracies, but they don't immediately revert to that assumption. Well, maybe this is because we never had a real democracy all along. Mm -hmm. right? It it sort of goes back to that. So that you know that has really struck me. So how do you end the book, uh, you know, on an, a very uncertain note without going back to saying, well, this must mean you know we have to redo the whole history of the past that leads us to this you know uncertain moment so i don't have a good solution to that but i do have to rewrite the end of the book to bring it up to the current moment which i keep hoping is going to resolve itself in some way but it you know it seems as unresolved today as it did when the actual referendum happened a few a few months ago so i'm i'm not sure how <laughs> i'm gonna how i'm really gonna solve that question and it's a lot just to keep up with what's going on in the news and that's right all the, as the events unfold that's right and so you know do you end it with okay as of today you know this is where we are right, right? <laughs> it almost seems that uncertain right that that it's it's hard to have some sort of resolution right yeah uh, as to where we are and what it means for spain's democracy i don't think anybody knows that at this moment right yeah, well, I guess that's always the difficulty. Of, to, as historians, we're not used to doing that, you know, talking about the present moment. Right, we aren't. Although, once again, what I think this is kind of an unacknowledged part of what we do. Mm -hmm. I, I think that every generation looks at the past through the present. And that's not something we always articulate or acknowledge. But I do think that we do that. Yeah, it's amazing how much what's going on in the present moment can shape the way you tell the story of the past, even if you don't realize right. that it's occurring. So just to kind of conclude, I thought we might dip in for a moment to what's coming next for you, because after working on such a, a massive project, and I know you're still um, working on the translation in Spanish, I'm kind of curious as to where you go from there and uh, where you're envi envisioning your research going next. It's it, it's interesting because for most of the writing of the book, I was I thought, oh, I'm definitely going to come up with a new project because <laughs> here I am, you know, looking at the whole and and to the very end, I wasn't sure, and then it really coalesced for me at the end. And so, not surprisingly, it's a topic that has to do with um, 
with a kind of thread that runs through the whole 19th and 20th century. So what's not surprising about that is that you would, I would discover, you know, a kind of longer term thread, you know, in doing a book on 200 years of history, when again, most people are looking at discrete pieces of it, you know, so what I'm, what I want to investigate is this kind of alternative thread of municipalist um, political movements. And that means movements that see local government um, as the source of um, decision making and empowerment and citizen participation, like the real unit of political empowerment. Mm -hmm. And what I see, what I saw sort of in doing, again, this whole sort of big sweep of history is that I see this as a thread that starts in the, in the um, revolts against Napoleon, right? And goes all the way through to Podemos or um, the coup in the Catalan case. You know, you see, you see basically this thread that goes through all sorts of, you know, federal republicanism, anarchism, Carlism, you could also say, and, you know, in through the, the neighborhood association movements that I studied in the 1970s and up to the present. And so this is this whole kind of alternative thread of modern politics. And what I want to argue is that we should see the modern the, the development of modern politics less as a kind of scaling up from the local to the national, as it's often written, mm-hmm. and more as a kind of back and forth between, you know, national level, regional level, of course, and local level, you know, and that all of those different sites of politics draw, I guess, you know, idealistic visions of how society should be organized and they kind of compete with each other rather than just being a kind of local is old regime and you know and national is somehow modern in terms of political organization you can certainly see plenty of examples of that in spanish history and i think especially because there have been so many hundreds of of local studies in the historiography but how rarely are they are they actually uh as you say, are the, are the dots connected? So that makes a lot of sense to have that be your next project coming out of this one. All right, so thank you so much for coming on the program, Pamela. And it's been great to, to share this new narrative of, of modern Spain with people. And hopefully at some point we'll have to have you back to talk more about the municipalities. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Foster, for also for doing this podcast, which is so great for all of us in the field. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.